All right, I think it's pretty obvious that we are a growing church. You can look around here and see that, but I want you to also know this. We're not just a growing church, we are a going church, okay? And why do we go? Whether it's the carpool line or the Congo, why do we go? Simple. We go because Jesus Christ first came for us. The motivation for our going is the gospel. We guys, we put this in our mission statement. We make and mobilize disciples in an environment of prayer and worship. And why would we show you a video about short-term mission trips? It's because genuinely we desire for each of you in the next few years to go on a short-term mission trip. I know it's difficult. I know you got to figure out who's going to watch the kids and you got to figure out your PTO and you got to you got to you know get on a plane and all that kind of stuff but here's what happens whenever you go on a mission trip and uh, many of you have been able to experience this you get to taste mission and adventure in the Christian life somewhere else and and here's what happens on every mission trip I told you a couple weeks ago some of the stages let me tell you the last stage of every mission trip you heard it in the video you're on the mission trip and you have this thought it's usually like as you're getting ready to head home you, you think this what if I did at home what I've been doing here? That's it. You're like, wait a second, like I'm praying for people and I'm looking at people as lost and needing the gospel and I'm talking about Jesus all the time and I'm reading my Bible and I'm living in community. What if I did at home what I've been doing here? Well, I hope you'll consider a short-term mission trip. And when we think about missions, one of the things that fuels missions is prayer. That's why over the 21 days, we gave you that 21-day prayer guide. Hopefully you were Walking through that, praying for our local, national, global partners, we want to do something unique. We want to make and mobilize disciples, dot, 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 in an environment of prayer and worship. And so we're going to be having three prayer and worship nights this year. The first one, I think I have the date behind me, is February 26th. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to change the night your community group meets, and I want you to come on Monday night instead of that week. If you're super spiritual, you can meet twice that week and also go to community group, Okay. But I want you to move your group to Monday night. We want to fill this room with passionate worship. And here's what we're going to do. We're calling it Kingdom and Culture. This is interesting. Uh, at the beginning of the year, with a, we do something called an all-staff where it's kind of like a, a, a monthly worship service for our staff. And during the all-staff, I talk to our staff about the 10 stories from last year that are changing our world and that have theological and biblical implications. And when I did that, we had a couple of staff go, what if you just did that at the prayer night? So I'm gonna be talking about the most significant things that have happened in the last 12 months in the world and how we are going to respond because I don't know who it was. I think it was Charles Spurgeon. He said every Christian should have a Bible under their right arm and a newspaper. If you don't know what those are, they, no, I'm just kidding, okay. And a newspaper <laughs> under your left arm. And so we're gonna do that together. I hope you'll, I mean, we are only doing this three times. I hope you'll make it a priority. I hope you'll come with your community group. I think it's gonna be a significant night. We need to win the battle in the unseen realm before we win it here in the seen realm. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for just this opportunity to gather together this morning, and we thank you for special opportunities throughout the year just for white-hot, passionate worship, to seek your face, to hear what's going on in the culture, and then to pray that kingdom prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, guys, there are certain days that you never forget, right? There are good days or there are bad days, right? Good days, like hopefully you're like, I'll never forget when we you know, had our kid or I'll never forget when we got married or I'll never forget when I graduated or whatever it is. And then there are really bad days and sad days and I don't really want to talk about those and you don't either, but we don't forget those either, right? The bad days, the sad days, the diagnosis, the death, the phone call in the middle of the night. 
There are certain days we can't forget, we always remember. I want to tell you about one of those for me. It was kind of, well, maybe, maybe the strangest day in my life. It was about 15 years ago. And they pulled us. I was working for a college ministry at the time, and we were down at the beach, and there was about 20 staff down there, and they said, everybody, we've got an announcement we need to make. That's not good. So we get in this room, and they said, hey, I'm not going to use his real name. But they said, hey, Mark is missing. I thought, Mark? Mark was in college ministry. They said, it's really strange because Mark went missing. He was living in D.C. at the time. They said, Mark went missing right after he had a breakfast with a college student. They said, we waited 48 hours because we wanted to talk to the authorities, but Mark's gone. I thought, what's going on? So that's a long story, but I'll tell you what happened. Basically, we finally, you have to do a lot of stuff with police and everything. You've got to get the phone records. We got them. You have to get the credit card statements. We got them. His mom couldn't get out of bed. She was actually, this became a nationwide story. She was supposed to be on Good Morning America. That's how big the story got. Strange. Well, anyway, we call, we re- we'll get his phone numbers, and one of the numbers is from Asheville that we don't recognize. We call that phone number, and a strange man answers and is real quick with us and hangs up the phone. We end up sending a team, which finds out where that number is, down to Asheville. What they saw, they both had to go to counseling. Mark had been living in hidden sexual sin. We don't even know for how long. But instead of getting help, he hid. And he had that moment where I guess he decided, I'm just going to go off the map act like I'm dead, and start a new life in Asheville. I wish, that was 15 years ago, I wish that story had a happy ending. It doesn't. And I tell you that because if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, we're going to meet a church stuck in sexual sin. (sighs) Sexual sin, if you don't get a hold of it, and we're all sexually broken, we all have sexually disordered desires, we're all sexual sinners, but... If you don't get a hold of sexual sin, it will get a hold of you. If you do not deny it, it will. And you know this. You have stories about this. It will destroy your life. Today, we are introduced to the church at Thyatira, okay? If you take notes, we're trying to name these churches, right? Last week was the worldly church. This week is the progressive church. This is the church, you'll see this in a few minutes when we get to the text. This is the church that is more tolerant than God. That's probably not a good thing. They're more tolerant than God. This is the church. Well, how how do you know this church today? Sometimes, like you know, it's hard to how how would you see this church today? Because these are churches. This is the church that has the rainbow flag hanging outside of their building. Have you seen these churches? This is the church back then. The church of Thyatira. Everybody pulled up to the church on their camel, and on the back of their camel was a coexist bumper sticker. Okay, (laughs) that was this church. It's okay to laugh. It's okay. I want to read you this. Turn with me to verse 18. I want us to be introduced to this church. Here it is. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, here it is, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like flame and whose feet are like burnished bronze. We've got to talk about the church at Thyatira, the city of Thyatira, and then, of course, Jesus. Here's what's interesting. The church at Thyatira, let's start with the city. This city is the smallest, least significant city of all seven cities that Jesus writes letters to. Interesting, though, he writes the longest letter to the smallest, least significant city. 
because often Jesus values things that we don't value, and Jesus cares about every city, no matter how small or insignificant it is. This is an interesting city. This was a city, it was wealthy, okay? But probably what's most interesting, it was a military city, but it had big guilds. You go, what are guilds? Well, they were basically labor unions, okay? You know how you've got your HR department with its, you know, all this, you know how they are. Okay, yeah. Okay. So back then they had, their HR departments were their guilds. And basically they were like big HR departments. They were like fraternities. They were like large social networks. And so if you were in, they took care of you. And if you were not in, they didn't take care of you. And so there was a huge pressure to conform, to believe what everybody else believes and not to have your, you know, not to stick your head up. Now, Jesus writes to this small church in Thyatira. We'll get more to the church in a second. And he reveals two things about himself. First, he talks about his eyes, okay? Why eyes? Because eyes are about, well, obviously, it's how you see. Think about, maybe this is the word. Jesus talks to us about his perspective. See, Thyatira was all into multiple perspectives, right? Everybody has a perspective, and everybody does have a perspective, right? This is what's so hard in marriage. The husband has a perspective, and the wife has a perspective. This is what's hard in families. The parents have a perspective and the kids have a perspective. CNN has a perspective and Fox has a perspective. The Republicans have a perspective and the Democrats have a perspective. Jesus says, okay, I have the perspective. I see the part in light of the whole. So that's kind of interesting. He says, I, I see things rightly. But then he talks about his feet. Do you notice that? Okay, why does he mention his feet as burnished bronze, pure? Okay, here's why. In the Bible... Well, in, in life, our feet are the most creaturely part of us, okay? I don't care how much pedicure you, you get, okay? How you paint your nails, they're still feet, okay? And back then, I mean, they were really, I mean, before we had nice tennis shoes, before we had clean streets, okay? Your, your feet were always the dirtiest part of you. They're the part of you that touches the earth. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 10, when he's talking about missionaries, what does he say at the very end? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Why doesn't he say how beautiful are the faces? Or how beautiful is the voice? Why the feet? Because one way you honor something is by calling something beautiful that isn't normally beautiful. Jesus is saying, why the feet? He's saying every part of me is pure. Jesus never had a wrong motive never had a wrong action, never had a wrong attitude, never has a wrong intention. Now he writes to this church, and I want you to see quickly the commendation. We'll spend most time on the correction. But let me show you the commendation. Here's what he says. Turn with me to verse 19. He says this. I know your works. That's what Jesus always says to each church. I know your works. Here they are. They're doing some good things. Your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Okay, so he says basically this. You're a loving, serving, growing church. Interestingly enough, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. This is, they're going to be progressive, but everybody who's progressive, it starts out just with loving, right? It sneaks in. It's because it looks loving. Okay, this is a warm, this is an inviting, this is a highly relational church but they're loving without the biblical limits. They think love is, hopefully we'll get here, love is not affirmation. A lot of people think love is you make me feel good. That's not love. In fact, sometimes the most loving thing may be to make you not feel good right now so that you can feel good later. 
Love is a commitment to another person's highest good. Interestingly enough, though, this is the only church so far, and this is the fourth church we're looking at, that Jesus calls loving. He says, secondly, he says, you're serving, okay? Maybe we would say you're busy. Now, it's interesting because they're busy, but they're missing big problems. How many of you, sometimes you like to be busy so you can ignore the bigger problems in your life? You ever see that? It's like, dad's always working and dad's always traveling. It's like, yeah, because dad doesn't want to deal with everything at home. Or mom's got 14 side hustles. Why? Ignoring the responsibilities at home. They're busy, they're serving, they're growing. Your latter works are greater than the first. Here, we need to know this because we are a growing church and not all growth is good, obviously. There's something, and sometimes the things that grow the fastest are the most unhealthy, aka weeds, cancer, bacteria. Not all growth is good. And here's what happens in a growing church. In a growing church, it's easy to overlook sin, obviously. You know, it's like, well, who are all these people and where are they coming from? And everybody can kind of be anonymous here. And we're, we're catching up with staff and leadership and shepherding. And so he says, okay, you're a loving church. And you're a growing church and you're a busy church. Okay, get ready. Here's, I, I haven't talked about this in a long time. This is very interesting. Look what he says. But, verse 20, here it is. I have this against you. Here it is. That you, and you may want to underline this word, tolerate. Aren't we? Well, hold on, Jesus. Aren't we supposed to be tolerant? Yes and no. We'll talk about that. That you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. We'll talk about her today, too. Some of you are like, I met her. I know her. <laughs> Who calls herself a prophetess, and she's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Okay, what is tolerance? Well, there's good tolerance, which is the old definition of tolerance, okay? See, what's happened today is we're using the same vocabulary, but we have a different dictionary, so words don't mean what they used to mean. So basically every civil society needs to have some level of tolerance so we can all get along. Here, here's what tolerance used to mean. We'll call this the old definition of tolerance. It doesn't mean this anymore, but I'll give you the old definition. The old definition of tolerance is I will put up with you. I will endure you even though I disagree with you. The old tolerance, listen to this, assumed truth. It's like, all right, well, I don't even think that's true, and I don't even know if that's helpful, and I don't think it's good, but I'll endure it. Voltaire, I think he was an atheist, Voltaire said, I don't believe what you're saying, and I disagree with it, but I will fight to the death your ability to say it. That's the old tolerance, okay? Then there is... The new tolerance, here's the new tolerance, and this is what you've experienced, okay? It's this, I affirm you. And that's, a lot of times, that's, what it, that, that, that's not even enough now. It's not just I affirm, it's I approve. It's not just I affirm and I approve, because that won't be enough anymore, it's I celebrate, right? That's what this means nowadays. That's what tolerance means Today, I love what G.K. Chesterton said about that. He's a famous Catholic thinker, now dead, but G.K. Chesterton said that type of tolerance 
is the virtue of a man with no conviction. I want to talk about tolerance because there is a certain type of tolerance that Christians are supposed to have. First of all, we believe in the marketplace of ideas. You'll have to hear me carefully. I'm talking in very nuanced terms today. We believe in the marketplace of ideas. It's a commitment that the truth will set people free, okay? And so here's what we, it's like, anywhere you find the idea of religious liberty and freedom of speech, which we take for granted, always come out of some type of Judeo-Christian culture. Christians do not believe in relativism. Relativism says all ideas and perspectives and ideologies and views are equal. We don't believe in relativism at all. But Christians understand that in a diverse world, there will be pluralism, and we want everybody to be able to say what they believe, and we believe ultimately the truth's gonna win. But we don't believe in the I affirm, I approve, and I celebrate you. Now, there's two things. Now, by the way, if you, let me show you this in the text. I want you to see this in the text, not just for me. I want you to see this. Uh, if you'll, if you'll look, go back to verse 20. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So there are two things that Christians cannot tolerate, and I'm being very, we're being narrow here as we talk about this, in the church. So he's talking particularly Christians and what we shouldn't tolerate in the church with other people who say they're Christians, okay? So you need to tolerate your neighbor in ways that you might not tolerate your Christian brother and what they're doing because they don't know the Lord. In fact, you're called to more than tolerate your neighbor. You're called to love your neighbor, right? But there's two things we can't tolerate. You see them in the text, teaching and sinful behavior. Bad teaching, I should say. It's called heretical teaching. That's a big, scary, theological word, basically meaning... We, we can't put up with teaching that contradicts the main teachings of the Bible. And I don't have time to give you all the main teachings of the Bible, but here's a few of them. The total truthfulness of Scripture. That's what everything that we believe is based on. That every person is made in the image of God. It's a foundational, fundamental belief. That every person is sinful by nature and choice. That Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead. That there's a need for conscious saving faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. That there are only two destinations when we die, heaven and hell. Those are just some of the basic things. And if somebody is teaching something that contradicts that, it cannot be tolerated in the church. We expect that to be taught on someone's podcast somewhere else. But that can't be taught in the church. The second thing is unrepentant sin. Open, unrepentant sin, which is what Jezebel's engaging in. See, today I think we're confused on the difference between diversity and depravity. Diversity is another one of those buzzwords, right? Right? It's a big buzzword. And we, as hopefully this will make sense to you, we as Christians can celebrate all amoral diversity. But there are certain things, and we want our church to be, have all types of amoral diversity, age and stage diversity, all, all of that, socioeconomic diversity. 
But we get confused with diversity and depravity. Depravity is when somebody's living in open sin or folly or rebellion against what God has said. See, here's the thing. Maybe I'll say it another way that'll be helpful. The number one value in our society today is the new tolerance. I affirm you, I approve you, I celebrate you. Have you noticed that the most mature person in our culture today can just act like nothing's wrong? That's not goofy or gross. The number one value in our society is the new tolerance. The number one value in the Bible is truth. What, the, what tolerance tells everybody is you're okay, I'm okay, just tell us who you are, tell us how you feel, do whatever feels good, that's the new tolerance. And the main value in the Bible is repentance. You're not okay, I'm not okay. See, maybe think about it this way. God is not tolerant, but he is patient. And some people take God's patience with sin as God's tolerance of sin, and those are different. Nobody can look at the cross of Jesus Christ and say God tolerates sin. No, you could say God dealt with sin. You could say God punishes sin. Nobody can look at the lake of fire and say, you know what, I think God is tolerant of sin. So the first thing that he says is, guys, of course there's a certain type of tolerance that is necessary to live in a civil society. But we cannot tolerate certain things in the church. But then it gets even more interesting. I want to show you this. Turn with me to verse 20. We'll read it one more time. I want you to meet this lady. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, that's her spiritual children, her followers, and all of the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I give to each according to your works. I need to talk about something that I have never talked about in the seven and a half years that I've been teaching here just because it hasn't come up yet. But it's a very important topic. It's obviously a very important topic for a growing church because this is a growing church that has this problem and it's this, the Jezebel spirit. The Jezebel, some of you that might make you feel uncomfortable, the Jezebel, it's a pattern of acting. It's a type of person. For example, we don't think, no commentator that I read actually thinks this lady is named Jezebel. Why? Because of the stigma of that name, nobody would ever name their daughter Jezebel. It's like, have you, has anyone been named Adolf since World War II? It's like, eh, let's go with a different name, honey, you know? I don't, that name has a little bit of baggage with it. Yeah, it does. Jezebel was the worst queen, maybe the worst woman in the Old Testament. Imagine this, she married King Ahab, the seventh king of Israel. God comes, could you imagine this? God comes to King Ahab at one point and says, the worst thing you ever did was marry that woman. So he said, I want to talk about the Jezebel spirit. It attacks 
all churches, but it can certainly attack growing churches. Now, the Jezebel spirit or pattern of being or way of acting or type of person, whatever phrase you want to use, it could be a man or it could be a woman. It's usually a woman because there is a sexual seduction, seducing component to it. There are some, we'll see, they don't like authority. So occasionally you'll have a man that's got the Jezebel spirit, but normally he doesn't stay around much. Like I've met so many of these men in my days. I know what they're doing. They're staying at home doing home church. Have you met this guy? His wife and kids are dying. They're like, can we please go to church? No, everybody's wrong. I can't get along with anybody. Open up your Bible. We're going to be talking about the Canaanites and circumcision again. It's like, oh, dad. But the Jezebel spirit often happens with women. And honestly, sometimes women see it better than the men do. Right? Our sisters in Christ are like warning us, that is not a good woman. She seems really friendly. She's not. I want to talk about what happens. We've had several situations like this in our church in the last seven and a half years. Uh, The first thing about a Jezebel spirit is it's a self-appointed leadership spirit. Did you see that? She comes and she calls herself prophetess. She shows up and she's like, I'm here, guys, and my title is prophetess, and I'll be doing all the teaching. It's like, who, who, who appointed you? Me. Oh, that's very interesting. Be very, very careful. This can happen with men or women. Somebody who is way too excited to get into leadership. It's like, okay, you know, every door of leadership here is super small. And every time you get through it, there's a smaller door on the other side. And there's more people that you have to get through. And there's more assessments that you have to do. And there's more time that you have to spend. Be very concerned about somebody who's overly concerned about title and position. The Jezebel spirit, it creates factions. It creates divisions. Um, this is true, but this will be offensive. Some of this is offensive, okay? The rest of this is really offensive, okay? Just go away. Uh, the Jezebel spirit preys upon weak men. Yes. They love weak, passive, soft men. In fact, there's nothing they hate more than a strong, confident, masculine male. They can't, ah, they can't stand it. In fact, sometimes you'll see a Jezebel, this happens, and both are miserable, by the way, but sometimes a Jezebel marries a weak man so she can control him. I've had, I've been confronted by Jezebel after service before, and this has happened. I mean, I can still see it. And I'm going to counseling for it, no. Um, But this happened, this literally happened. This woman is confronting me. Jezebel spirit right after service. And I look at her husband and her husband is looking at the ground. And it's like, he's like, I just want to go home. I'm embarrassed. It's like, oh man, I'm sorry that you have to go home. So this, now the second part of it though is is, is interesting. So so she she likes to question uh, authority, right? She has a questioning spirit or he can have a questioning spirit. But there's a sexual component to this. I need to talk about this for a little bit. Let me show you this. It says this. I keep reading the same verse, but it's all in there. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants 
to practice sexual immorality. So I think this is the first time in the seven letters that we're explicitly talking about sex, okay? And I, I told you before, I only talk about sex as often as it comes up, which is a little bit more often than I wish it did. Okay, so sorry. <laughs> Here it is. Um, sex is interesting because I think it is our sexual sin. And I already said earlier, we're all sexually broken and you know, all sexually disordered desires and all sexual centers. But I think it is often our sexual sin where our brokenness is most clearly felt by a lot of us and where maybe our rebellion against God is also most clearly seen. This is why most people, not every person, but most people's greatest regrets are normally sexual in nature. There's a, I mean, sex is so deep, right? So usually men, just this is not every man, but men who have absent fathers usually have deep sexual, sexual issues. What's up with that? I don't know the answer to that. Well, the interesting thing about sex is sex is a big deal in the Bible and sadly a big problem in the church, sexual sin. There are certain things that it's like, it's a big problem, but it doesn't seem like if we went to the Bible, it's that big of a deal. Sex, sexual sin ends up being a big deal and a big problem. So there are nine vice lists in the New Testament. A vice list is every time Paul or somebody kind of riffs like, and here's all the bad things, don't do these bad things. Well, of all nine vice lists, they're always like different you know, vices. It's not an exhaustive or extensive list. In every single vice list in the New Testament, sexual sin is mentioned. In almost every vice list, it's first. And in many of the vice lists, it's mentioned with several different words and categories to describe it. And so he says that this, this, this woman, she's seducing. And it's interesting, we don't know exactly the teaching that she's saying, but it's probably some version of overemphasizing, and you go, how do you do this? But you overemphasize the grace of God by saying, as long as you believe, you can do whatever you want with your body. It's some version of that. Well, I want you to see how God deals with this. Here's what he says. Verse 21. I gave her, this word will be used three times, I gave her time to, here it is, the first time, repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So we're gonna kind of just, warning here for a second, we're just gonna get real, just serious just for a few minutes here. Um, there's an expiration date on repentance. There's a sunset on repentance in your life, okay? I don't know when that is. In God's sovereignty and providence, it's different in different people's lives. There's an hourglass. When God says, that, I want you to repent of that, he turns over the hourglass, and I don't know how much sand's in it for you. But I wonder if, it doesn't have to be sexual sin. It could be any sin in your life, okay? Is there something in your life right now that you need to, you just know you need to repent of it? Like, now is the time. Like, I know you haven't got caught yet. But you almost got caught, probably. And I know it hasn't gone public yet. I, I had a mentor, and he said, and I think this is a helpful illustration, 
He said, sometimes God gives us closets. You know, it's like there's some things in the closet that shouldn't be here, and most people aren't going to see your closet, and God gives people closets, and he says, it's time to clean out that closet. I don't know right now, you know, I think right now God is saying to you through this text, it is time to clean out whatever closet that's coming to your mind right now. Maybe nobody knows about it but you. And God is gracious. But I want to show you this. I want to show you what happens if you don't repent. Behold, verse 22, I will throw her on a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they, here's that word again, repent. So if they repent, this doesn't have to happen. Repent of her works. Look at this. And I will strike her children dead. That's her spiritual children. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each according to your works. I want to talk about something else interesting. Notice here, he says that she is going to get sick because of her sin. There are sometimes, not always, maybe not even often, but there at least, look, you have to have the category for this. Sometimes there are physical consequences to sinful spiritual choices. I was with a group of pastors a couple years ago. One of the pastors, imagine this, we're all in this room together. One of the pastors says, I'm having some health issues. We've been praying for each other about a couple different things, so we're praying for this guy and a couple of his health issues. Eyes are closed, heads are bowed. We're praying pretty intensely for this guy, and the guy sitting next to me hits me, and it's the leader of the group. And he looks at me and he says, he whispers in the middle of prayer, ask him if he has anything to confess. I thought, why don't you ask him that? (laughs) I don't want to ask him that. I don't want to ask that. I don't want to be asked that. And I asked him. And he did. Sometimes, not all the time, we have to have a category. You just have to have multiple categories. You have to have a category for you're anxious and you're depressed. Maybe there's nothing, but is there something you'd like to confess? You're having lots of health issues? Okay. Go, take, go see the doctor. I want to ask you this. Is there anything that you have that you want to confess? You're bitter and you're angry. Okay, is there anything that you want to confess? It's like, oh, no, we don't, don't want It's scary to ask that question. It's even scary to be asked that question. But did you see what he says? He says, if she doesn't repent, I'm going to judge her so that, if you go back to the text, you'll see this. It says, so that all the churches know. So here's another kind of scary teaching, but good for us to know. God sometimes judges one person as an example to everybody else. Sometimes, and this is a terrible thing, but this is just how it is, some people's lives only serve as an example of what not to do. You already know that's true. Some of you can look back on your family history and you're like, my grandfather was that. This is why usually, as a general rule, the youngest kid in the family is the best behaved. Why? Because he saw the poor decisions and consequences of his older brothers and sisters. Remember when I told you about Mark, my friend who went missing? When we find out, when we found out, we were all young. I was in my 20s. When we found out where he was and what he'd been doing, we got a phone call with our senior pastor. 
he was back in Charlotte, and we were at like, the beach, like I told you. And so we, we, I remember we all gathered around, called him on speakerphone, and he was 67 years old. He'd seen a lot of ministry. And I remember he was trying to comfort us, everything happened with Mark, and he said, guys, I want to tell you something about Mark. He said, Mark's life serves as a warning to all of us. This is where sin leads. And I don't think there was any of us who didn't go home that night and say, is there anything in my life that if left unchecked and unrepented of could lead to some type of path like that? Here's what he says. He says in verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call, this is interesting, Satan is mentioned in almost every letter to the churches. What some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not, I do not lay on you any other burden. What are the deep things of Satan? Last week we talked about the idea, we're learning new things about Satan, which is helpful because we need to know our enemy. Last week we learned that Satan has a headquarters, a base of operations, okay? This week we learned the deep things of Satan. What does that mean? Well, when something's deep, okay, this probably doesn't happen, but while I'm teaching, if you ever thought, that's deep, okay? Here's what you mean by that. Deep means that affects a lot of things. So if you hear something really deep, you'll immediately be like, That'll affect my money. That'll affect my marriage. That affects me at work. That affects my health. That was deep. It touches on multiple dimensions and domains of my life. So what are the deep things of Satan? It's what everything is connected to that Satan teaches. Like what is the foundation of Satan's teaching? I want to just tell you what it is. Because it was what was taught by Jezebel and we're told this is the deep things of Satan. Here's what it is. That you can be safe in your sin. Even the cross of Jesus Christ does not make sin safe. It makes sin forgivable. See, the great lie of Satan is you can have salvation and also still have all your sin. That you can have both and the best of both worlds and every false teaching tells you some version of don't worry about it. So what the first, it's what the serpent said in the garden, don't worry about it. You will surely not die. There are no consequences for what you're doing. So Jesus ends, and I just want to read you this, Jesus ends with a powerful picture of himself. Let me show you this. Verse 25 says this, Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When we read that last section, it makes modern Americans very uncomfortable, right? Because did you hear what he said? Ruling with a rod of iron, right? It's like, why would that make us uncomfortable? Well, here's what it is. It's a word of triumph to the church. But it's a word of triumph 
to a church that currently feels very trampled. The reason that we're so uncomfortable with the language of triumph in Christ is because we don't feel very trampled right here. The reason we struggle with this language of you will one day be vindicated and you'll rule and you'll reign with Christ is because we don't actually feel very opposed here. See, Jesus ends with this powerful statement. He, he talks about ruling and reigning, and then he says, you'll get the morning star. Now, that's very interesting, because in other places in the Bible, Jesus himself is called the morning star. Here's what Jesus is saying. What, what do you get if you repent? Right? It's like, why would I repent? Why would I stop doing fun things? That's what repentance sounds like to some people. Jesus is saying, because if you repent, you get more of me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, it's interesting because Jesus says, I'm the morning star, which means the greatest gift of the gospel is Jesus himself. Think about it. Why do you want to go to heaven? Well, if you're, everybody wants to go to heaven, but why does a Christian want to go to heaven? Because Jesus is there. Why do you want a new body? Well, everybody wants a new body, especially as it gets older. No, 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 no. You want a new body so that all your faculties can fully worship and enjoy Jesus. Why do you want your sins forgiven? Everyone wants their sins forgiven. No, no, no. You want your sins forgiven if you're a Christian because then they're not in the way of your relationship with Jesus anymore. Why do you want to be righteous? Well, ever, so that I can stand before God. Why do you want to live forever? Because it's going to take that long to enjoy Jesus. Jesus ends speaking to a church with all of these struggles and all of these temptations, and he says, in the end, I promise you'll get me if you repent. You may not get tenure. You may not get a promotion. You may not get a raise. You may not get the health you want. You may not get the marriage you want. You may not get the family you want. And all of your dreams will not come true in this life, but you'll get Christ. And so as we close together, I want you to sing that. We're gonna sing All Sufficient Merits. We've sung it together before, and I want you to understand that whenever you repent, whenever you clean out the closet, what you get is more of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I want to just take a moment. And I wanna just give us a, a moment to, to ask the question, what have we tolerated? What have we allowed in our life that has no place in a Christian's life? Lord, some people, it, it's wrong believing, Lord, and I pray right now that they would stop listening to themselves and start preaching the gospel to themselves. For others, it's, it's something, and, and, and they know exactly the closet they need to clean. And I pray that even as they sing this next song, they'll say, I want to repent because I want more of Christ. We ask this all.